Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Nathan Simmons. Now, Nathan is joining us uh, via UK. We're connected up, bouncing signals off satellites today. And uh, so the, the sound quality might be a little bit suspect, but don't let that keep you away. Nathan is a leadership coach, and he's got some extremely interesting stories to tell about his life and how he's helped people develop more income and decrease their work in their own. So welcome, Nathan. I appreciate you being on, my friend. Thank you, Jason. I love that intro. Crushing mediocrity. Oh, it rings so many bells. Love it. I appreciate that, my friend. It, uh, you were talking uh, off mic a little bit about coming to your purpose, and that one took me quite a few years to get to. So I know a little bit about that process, brother. It, it does take a little bit of time, and kind of it takes refining and constant analytics until you get to that point where you can say the words and it just feels good when they come out of your mouth and feels right as well. I love the way you frame that. That's exactly it. It, it felt right when it came out, and that's how I knew that's what I wanted to do with... Uh, with this particular brand. But enough about me. This is about you, my friend. So let's jump into your life. Uh, you've been doing mm. some incredible things. Obviously, we connected through Impact Theory League on the old yes. interwebs. And um, I had posed a question asking people basically what they had been up to for this past year, what they had accomplished. And your list, man, read like a laundry list of accomplishments. And it was just fantastic to see someone really going hard in the paint because a lot of times what I find is people talk the talk, but don't necessarily walk the walk. So it was really interesting to see someone respond with so many different things going on. And before we jump into that, I'd love to give our listeners just a little bit of color around you and, and your life. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, what your upbringing was like, and give us some color around that so we can frame what you're doing now? Absolutely. I can paint that picture pretty clearly. So uh, I grew up in a town called Maidstone, just southeast of London uh, in Kent. And I had a really normal childhood. You know, we we grew up in a time in kind of late eighties, uh, in the eighties. We didn't know war. Uh, we had recessions. We grew up in this austere times where, at one point, my parents' mortgage was almost twenty percent. Uh, I joke with people that computer games didn't have a save function, and it was they were kind of hard times at points. But we learned perseverance. Um, and kind of focus and determination. Life was normal. My parents are still happily married. Uh, as I grew up, um, I was struck down quite heavily with illness at about the age of nine years old. Um, I was one of the first people in my local area to be diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Um, but because it was so uncommon, especially in boys at this point in time, it was, wasn't diagnosed for quite some time. So I had perforated appendix um i had um, a section of my bowel removed wow and i spent yeah i spent nearly nearly a year in going in and out of hospital um with all sorts of problems that went with this now can you tell us just a little bit about crohn's disease for those who don't understand yeah. what that is yeah so in the majority it's, it's inflammation of the bowel and what ends, ends up happening is you have um your immune system goes a, a bit crazy and you start to it starts to do to work against you and you end up with blisters and, and terrible lesions on the inside. Um, what normally happens is the valve between your small and your large intestine uh, tends to take the brunt of the, the, the problem and you'll end up more often not having the section of your bowel removed if it's not dealt with appropriately. 
Um, so at the age of nine, I'm in the hospital, pipes in all sorts of places, not able to eat, lost huge amounts of weight. Um, but, you know, and this is not common knowledge. You know, we're talking late 80s here, so we didn't have Google. Um, my mum was Google. Uh, so my mum went to the health food shop and she asked lots of questions about Crohn's disease. She asked lots of questions about bowel disorders. And she got a whole wealth of information. And over the course of 12 to 18 months following my diagnosis, and now most doctors will tell you that Crohn's disease isn't curable. Okay, My mum did the research. We did a super strict diet. Uh, we went down a very holistic approach alongside the, the medical route and cured Crohn's disease. I haven't had um, a reoccurrence of Crohn's disease since I was nine years old, since that first occasion. That's amazing, my um, friend. I, what, did you yeah. guys, uh, what did you guys discover in, in that journey that helped you so, deal with this? Yeah, and this is, this is the big part. So, And this is my logic and understanding of it. The Crohn's disease isn't actually a disease. It's a symptom. This is what I've come to understand. And it's a symptom of... Uh, candida which is an internal yeast infection so your yeast bacteria goes a bit bonkers in the background um, and causes an imbalance uh, in your gut flora and because of this imbalance in your gut flora then your immune system gets in and goes into overdrive and then starts attacking you rather than the bacteria that then turns into inflammation which then turns up as the symptoms of Crohn's disease so then they whisk you into hospital, say it's incurable, and then remove the section of bowel and say that's going to cure it for a certain amount of time until you turn up next time. Mm. Now, the candida, being a yeast infection, if you understand anything about brewing or anything like this, basically if you're eating things like sugar, bread, pastries, um, alcohol, these sorts of things, you're fueling the yeast infection. So if you're putting in quite a sweet diet, and I had a very sweet tooth as a child, if you're pumping lots of refined sugar into your system, it causes the yeast bacteria to come out and kill children and start attacking you. So it's all down to the diet that you put in, throwing these internal bacteria and fungi out of whack that then cause the problem. So it's all down to diet. That's amazing. And so many things are when it comes to health, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you guys basically just enter into a uh, different way of eating and that helped mm -hmm. deal with the yeast problem, which then, of course, yep. got rid of the Crohn's symptoms? Yep. So basically you go on a zero sugar diet. So there's no fruit, no dry fruit, no refined sugars. It's just meat and veg, basically uh, rice cakes, that, that sort of stuff, live yogurts, live cultures wow. to get all the bacteria back into balance. And you have to do that for an extended period of time to bring the bacteria and kill the um, the over-agitated yeast and bacteria and bring it back down to normal levels. Mm -hmm. and then once you do that, you can lead a normal life. But at the end of the day, we already know that, okay, drinking a can of Coke for most people is okay. But if you're drinking, you know, three, four, five, ten cans of Coke a day, at some point you're going to have a problem. Right. Um, but most people are wandering around oblivious to this and think they can, they can do whatever they like because they can then just go and see a doctor, get a prescription prescribed a pill or go and have an operation and it's all back to normal well actually right. you know as human beings we have to take responsibility for what we're putting in because it's our hands that are going towards our mouth with whatever we've got in it certainly certainly so it, it sounds like uh, the medical culture in the uk might be similar to that it, that it is here in terms of it's very sort of reactionary not necessarily preventive in the majority yes i mean we, we obviously are we lucky we have the the national health service here 
in the majority, though, it's still a band aid over the, the situation rather than let's look at the, the whole person emotionally, physically, um, before we make some decisions on that. Yeah, that's such a, a crucial key, key component that's sorely lacking, at least over here, for sure. I know I've had several people on uh, the podcast now who've, whose sole mission it is to actually create an integrated health awareness and organization to help deal with some of those issues because like you said it is dealing with the whole person not just a symptom here and a symptom there so how old were you when this was happening in your life this was nine i was nine years old i hadn't even made it to kind of secondary school for us secondary school starts at 10 so i I was just on the cusp of starting secondary school and this all happened wow wow did that impact your you know your young life in terms of how you made friends or how you were received at school or how you dealt with, you know, the, the rigors of being a child of that age? Mm, I don't think it did, but I, the thing that I learned when looking back over my story in retrospect, it was, I mean, I can remember the, the names and faces of most of the nurses that I w- was in the care of and they were phenomenal human beings. And what they were teaching me, which I didn't realize at the time, you know, was compassion how to be compassionate, how to be kind to individuals in, in certain situations. Um, and I definitely didn't realize that at the time because what happened then is I went to school and I still felt a little bit like the old one out. I'd missed nearly the whole of that year. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt at odds with uh, the school system. Uh, my brother was the toughest kid in school. So I had this, this role model kind of to, to almost live up to. Um, in fact, he was the you know he, to, to to benchmark him as kind of the toughest kid in school. He got expelled for fighting with the principal. <laughs> no, he wasn't. You know, so there, there's some next level stuff to to be contending with there. And I could never live up to this, you know. So I I had this projection on him of being kind of this this, this kind of you know semi you know demigod in right. in the in teenage life. That is, and I could never that's have, amazing. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to go, go in style. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I had this and I felt I had to live up to this role model. So then um, I remember it started probably when I was around about 13 and I was walking home from school. We had quite a distance to walk home. Um, and there was a group of lads coming the other way. You know, and I'm reasonably happy, go lucky, but something didn't feel right. And four or five boys coming towards me from another school. Sort of know one of them. I know his, his brother uh, was in my school. He was in a different school. Something didn't feel right. These guys were a couple of years older than me. Uh, and that's when the bullying started. So, and this is important in my school life because it was a big juncture. Is you know these group of lads. So I've got this role model of my brother being the toughest kid in school. I've got this group of lads coming towards me the other way. Uh, we started as verbal abuse one day, then turned into spitting, and then it turned into physical abuse. Mm-hmm. But because of this role model kind of scenario perception in my head, I couldn't tell anyone. I couldn't tell my brother because I felt it would demasculate me. I couldn't tell my father because um, it, it just, you know, again, it just, I didn't feel like I was, I was man enough. Mm-hmm. But then what happens is over a course of time, you know, I didn't deal with it. I just, I would run home. I'd go the long route home so I didn't see these guys every, every night. And I would run home so no one would know that I've actually uh, gone a different route. And everyone would think I'm just arriving at the same time. Um, and everything's okay so I'm, deni- I'm in denial right but then rather than deal with the bullying that I was receiving I did the only thing I understood to do and that was to bully other people oh. and what I understood was I think it was Sandra Dr. Sandra 
can't remember the name. Wilson. I think it's Dr. Wilson. Hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So this compassion that I'd learned at the beginning of my school life in the care of these nurses, um, gone to school, started being bullied, and then turned that pain into bullying other people just to perpetuate the cycle and the hierarchy. Wow. Um, so school and I just didn't fit. You know, in the end, you know, again, looking back at it retrospectively, I was an energetic boy who learned through seeing and doing, forced to sit in a classroom and be subjected to hearing and repetition. Right. You know, those two, two things are never going to work together. No, definitely not. And, and especially in young boys, it's, it's amazing to me the way the system is structured to educate, uh, especially mm-hmm. young boys. And, and now, basically, in the States, it's, it's become a situation where we've medicated young, interesting, adventurous boys because of, quote unquote, they're misbehaving when the reality is they're just bored, yep. senseless. Yep, exactly that. And they're going to they're act up and play, uh, play up accordingly mm-hmm. um, in order to create the energetic release that is actually being bottled up in them. That's exactly right. Um, and then for me, so I've gone from being bullied to being the bully. Um, I'm frustrated in a school environment. And at this point, I start smoking marijuana um, and eventually work my way up into other recreational drugs. And it's not that one drug is a gateway to another. It's, um, you know, Garble Mate talks about as well, you know, trauma is the gateway to drugs. Right. And trauma and, and, and those sensations is all relative um, to your situation. So what led you down this path? Was it that you just were trying to avoid the feelings that you felt and it numbed you out? Or was there something else mm-hmm. going on for you? Avoiding the feelings. I didn't know what to deal with. You know, I didn't want to own up to the fact that I was being bullied. Um, I was too ashamed of not actually challenging the situation, which is one of the, you know, the, the understandings I have later on when I look at my purposes about challenges, about friction. Even if I got into a serious um, altercation with four other boys, did I actually stand my ground? No. You know, so I spent the next however many years of my life running away from that, mm. trying to disown these wounded parts of myself, um, and then just end up self-medicating. And that self-medication started at around about 15, 16. Wow. Wow. How did you uh, deal with this as a young teenager? I mean, basically, you know, obviously you emerged from it, but what were those days like leading up to getting out of that? Hmm. <sighs> And this is the pain that I see now. So you leave school, you, well, I left school. You leave school um, with certain labels attached to you of, not, not, you know, you're not going to amount to anything. Um, whether it's real or not, you know, could try harder, all these sorts of things. But I, I had this sensation that even at 15 that I was meant for something bigger than this, that my name would be up in light some way, shape or form. I had no idea how. And that kind of pushed me forward. And my father was asking me these questions, you know, and it was the only two questions in his, um, what's the word I'm looking for, in his skill set. Mm-hmm. What are you going to be? What are you going to do? That was it. That was, that was the extent of his questioning ability. That questioning caused a level of frustration in me because I didn't have the answer for it. He didn't have any deeper questions to ask me to, to push that thing so it was always going to be, you know, what are you going to do? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It was always the, I don't know. I don't know. And it caused a level of irritation and, and friction inside of me, which, again, just added to the, the experiences I've had at school. And I would just, I would drift from one job to the next, maybe get a pay rise, maybe get a promotion, look for a management job, look for a leadership job, 
go diagonal, do something here, move, you know, but nothing of greatness. Kind of, again, that mediocrity you talked about at the beginning. You know, just doing what everyone else does. But it never quite felt right. It never really, it didn't elevate or lift my soul in anything that I was doing. I was just ticking someone else's agenda. Right. Um, Let me, and, you know, I want to I dive yeah. into something that you said just really quick because I can identify with the statement that you made about being meant for more. And I'm just curious mm-hmm. in your experience if you can remember what that manifested as in your life at that age, because I felt something very similar. You know, I, I don't, I don't live a status quo life. I've never wanted to live a status quo life. And it's not like I'm out, you know, ruling the world or anything, but by the same token, I'm not living to the standards that I were, that I was given by my parents or by the school system. And it sounds like your life was very similar. So what did that manifest itself? Like, what did it feel like, or how did it, how did it show up in your awareness that you were meant for more? I, you know, there was this thing I always knew there was there's, there's something in there that I need to give, uh, and I was listening to another gentleman by the name of Calvin Witcher, and he said, "Your purpose is never unknown. It's either unclear, unstructured, or unfocused." Wow, I love that. Yeah, and when you then go back and do the analytics, you can always find the golden thread of philosophy that runs through every single event in your life. Mm. Now, when I went back and did those analytics, you know. One thing my parents gave me was a very, very conscious work ethic. I can work phenomenally hard when I'm in my zone of genius and expertise. If it engages me, I will no, I will go in ridiculous and I will make it happen come no, heaven or hell. So the parents give me that. The, the part that I came to understand around my challenging nature is that I challenge everyone and everything. It's, yeah, it's who I am at a genetic level. And I didn't know how to channel this as a child and I remember you know, my first ex- examples of this is uh, when I used to pull funny faces like I stick my tongue out or put my fingers in my mouth and put you know, my mum would say you know if the wind changes you'll stay like that <laughs> so what I would do though Jason is I would sit there with my face pulled at silly angles and wait for the wind to physically change so that I could turn <laughs> around and tell my mum that it wasn't true now I could be out there for a couple of hours yeah wow. So that was the first kind of realization of my purpose and my understanding. Again, didn't realize this too much later. But then these frustrations, these bottled up self-medication, I go traveling. Um, you know, I saved up. I went traveling for 15 months, Southeast Asia, Thailand, Cambodia, um, then into Australia. Saw some phenomenal things. And, you know, I worked hard to make that goal happen. I was you know, very intentional, saving money, and, and, did the, and did the work. But then when I came back, it was the same energy, though, that when I was disjointed and dysfunctional, that it was the same energy and focus of attention that got me addicted to cocaine and ecstasy and almost cost me my life when I overdosed eight months later on you know, an excessive amount of, of ecstasy tablets and in excess of five grams of cocaine. Wow. So... So was that the result of traveling and having new experiences sort of light you up and then come back to home mm. where they weren't or, or what was going on there? For exactly. You? In part of that, you know, so you go traveling for 15 months and if you go on your own as I did, and I met a few people along the way, you, you have an opportunity to reinvent yourself. And when you return back, you know, 
for me, what happened was it was almost like putting an old coat on and I became that person again. It's just like, well, I've just been away for 15 months mm-hmm. and I've got all these experiences and I'm coming back to this reality and I'm literally, I just dropped back into the low vibration of who I was previously. Mm. But I come back in with uh, a whole level of, a new level of determination and frustration and a deeper level of kind of suffering around it. And then go in and do the only thing that I can do, which is to work twice as hard as the thing that is keeping me kind of keeping me sane almost. But then that happens to be recreational drug taking. Mm. Wow. Wow. Again, it sounds like uh, the, those feelings that came up for you that you didn't know how to process, it sounds like you were Correct. trying to numb them out again. Was that what was going on for you? Correct. No, I couldn't. I was still running away from the pain that I hadn't dealt with before. Mm. Mm. Well, obviously, at some point you did learn to deal with it, you know, because mm-hmm. here we sit today, right? So, how, again, yep. how did you go from that transition point and emerge, you know, on the other side? with an awareness of how to deal with those feelings so that you no longer needed or required the drugs. And, and of course the, the overdose, maybe that was a wake up call. It was one of the wake up calls. Um, you know, the biggest, you, know, you break down, like literally, you know, your breakdowns lead to breakthroughs and you, sometimes you have to go through that process. You need your pains and you need your realization in those pains to help you move forward. I, Categorically, at that point, I woke up the next day lucky to, to be able to, I think, in, with what I'd just done. Started to have some deeper realizations about my life and what I was capable of. And I looked over the edge of that void, of that chasm, and I looked down and said, I've got a choice here. Either I go to jail or die, or I stop doing this. Mm-hmm. And then again, it came back to that sense of purpose is I knew there was something else going on and this isn't what I was designed to be doing. So mm-hmm. at that point, I, I you know, metaphorically literally stepped back from the edge and made a decision not to do this and go in a different direction. Uh, I severed ties with some of my so-called inflating speech marks, you know, close friends. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of those ones, those, those individuals were the ones that were actually holding me back and keeping me in that small mind. Right. Well, what was um, that experience like? So I made that decision and moved on. Yeah. And, and that's, that's such a key thing, right? I mean, you talk about who you're associating um, with, right? And, and so many people have such an issue doing that. Was this something that you were able to just mm-hmm. do kind of cold turkey or was it something that you had to warm up to? You know, that's huge. I mean, people, you know, switching, <laughs> switching groups of friends, right? Like it's for, for most people, it's like a fate worse than death. Yep. Now, it, it, there was the culmination of things that happened that made it a lot easier. Um, I was um, my back about it. One of them ends up jumping into bed with my so-called girlfriend at the time. Well, yeah, and all help. of this is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, that really does it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. F- fairly promptly as well. But, you know, it's, it's the universe shifts in, you know, deep down, I knew it was all wrong. Deep down, I knew there was a problem. You know, I'm in, in the mix of doing what I'm doing. You don't wake up every morning. Oh, do you know what? Today's a really good day to make a mess of my life. Mm-hmm. There are nudges constantly. When you choose to ignore them, the universe will do something in accordance to move you if you are not paying attention. Right. Everything converged in a singular point, and I went, you know what? I'm done. I'm out. 
oh, this is this is too much for me. I need I need I need a level of sanity here before I start a hurting myself even more or b hurting other people just to justify my frustrations. Mm-hmm. So at that point, it's literally cut the line. I'm out. I'm done. What did life look for you then? Look, look like for you then? I mean, at at that point, you know, when you emerge from a peer group, uh, especially one that's been deeply ingrained over a period of time, you know, a lot of people struggle. You know, they struggle to find new influences, uh, new people to hang out with. What did you do at that point to sort of, you know, recreate a better circle of of influence? Now, so this is where it gets really interesting. A couple of years before I actually went traveling to you know, Australia, Southeast Asia, I met my, I met a lady called Anna. Um, we were together for two years and we bought our tickets around the world together. Um, and we were going to travel for 15 to 18 months work and seeing the world. But six weeks before we were due to fly, she finishes it with me. She says, no, I can't do this. Now, this is the woman that I believed I was going to marry. So my heart was literally on the floor. We went traveling separately. I bumped into her once while we were traveling. Like I say, this is the woman I thought I was going to marry. Came back to the UK. I derail mentally, physically, emotional, full works. Several of the times with the so-called friends at that point in time. And then five weeks later, I'm standing outside of the cinema. We're just about to go in and see the, the last installment of the Lord of the Rings films. It's the night of my birthday. I'm there with a couple of good friends of mine. And then Anna walks past. And now she doesn't come from my hometown. So she had very little reason to be there outside of the, going into the cinema. She's going out with her mum. And we get talking. So I've been... Um, off everything at this point in time for five weeks. I've got my head fairly screwed on. I know I'm, I know I'm doing something different with my life right now. Anna turns up in my life. Everything starts all over again. Literally, you know, we get talking. We're having a bit of a conversation. The flame reignites immediately or fairly immediately. Three weeks later, she moves to Amsterdam to live in Holland. Um, six months later, I then moved to Holland to be with her. Um, I ended up living in Amsterdam with her for four years. Um, I ended up getting, you know, learning a lot about life there, martial arts. Also ended up managing the customer services for Time and Fortune magazine for mm-hmm. the global customers and National Geographic and Harvard Business Review while I was living there, managing their contact center. Wow. Um, so, you know, I had some super exciting things. And um, traveled to Brazil, came back to the UK with Anna. We got married, crikey, 11 years ago this year. Um, so you say, how did I deal with that situation? Do you know what? I took all the lessons of the valuable lessons of being stuck in that place. I learned all about the toxicity of individuals that, you know, enabled to, that are enabling you to stay small in your space. Took that universal kick in the behind, <laughs> severed everything, which then opened up this whole new space of creativity to go and live in a different country with the woman that I knew I was going to marry in the first place. Because had I not done those things, now, if I'd seen her and been in the same state as I was six weeks beforehand, that definitely would never have happened. Right, right. Yeah, it sounds like almost the, the move was almost a way of getting leverage over yourself to ensure that there was no way that you were going back. In part, yeah. In part, do I want to stay in my hometown, which has got all these memories and this, like 
like I said, this coat that you know, when I put it on, I became this other person. Or do I just want to take the coat off, hang it up, and just leave it exactly where it was, and then go and put on some new clothes? Yeah, it's amazing when you see that, right? I mean, especially this time of year, get around, you know, around the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, what have you. You've got uh, families come together, and it's amazing to watch people who've lived thousands of miles apart or hundreds of miles apart come together, and then the kids will take on the kid role inside the context yep. of their parents' house, right? The parents will take back on the parent role inside that dynamic. And it's funny, but it's it's such a powerful thing that our environment, the people that we know so well, the people who basically helped shape us have a tremendous impact on us. And to see that, you know, you had the balls to actually leave your hometown and go try something new, man, that's, that's huge. A lot of people don't do that. And I think that's one of the reasons no. that so many people stay stuck. And you know what? I can go back to my hometown and I can go into some of the pubs that I used to drink in and I can guarantee the same people will be in there, except now they're going, they're 25 years older and they're not looking particularly, you know, um, they're looking a little bit worse for the wear yeah. because they're doing exactly the same things they did. Yeah, it's so funny that you mentioned that, man. I, I do I have the same issue. I'll go back home to uh, Athens, Georgia for me. And there's a bar there called Nowhere Bar. And it, okay. it, it totally lives up to its name. The people in there are going absolutely nowhere. And it's the same people that... You know, <laughs> that I was in high school yep. with, like sneaking in, you know, before we were old enough to drink. They're in there drinking, like you said, 30 years older and at least 40, 50 pounds heavier. <laughs> yeah. 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 And looking sorry for themselves, but not really knowing why. Exactly, man. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So mm. you guys, wow, that's really cool. So you guys took the plunge, you moved, um, you obviously developed some skills, um, started moving up the yep. corporate ladder. But by the same token, you're in a new environment. And now here you are married to the woman that hey you I, i'm assuming at one point you thought might have been a write-off I, at one point you know i i knew uh, the first day you know, this is going to be the woman i'm going to marry but i had no idea what the journey was and I'm, i couldn't comprehend what happened in between that just at that point it just doesn't make any sense that's amazing um, but you know, it's that universal lesson you know if someone had said well this is how it's going to run this is how it's going to roll out you don't get the life lessons you need to go through. You don't get the the desire um, to make things work when you get that opportunity the second time. If someone said, "Oh, by the way, it's going to look a little bit," no, you have to go through that kind of pain point and get that level of appreciation for that individual, so that when you do get the opportunity, you go back in, you know, mentally, physically, and emotionally, and make it work even better than last time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with new tools, right? New tools this time. Mm-hmm. Fantastic, brother. Yeah. So you guys obviously, uh, uh, you know, ended up leaving that area. What came next for you and Anna at this point? So we did Amsterdam for four, four and a half years. Um, I traveled to Brazil at this point as well. So I did some time in Brazil training martial arts. I was training heavily capoeira. Oh, nice. Went there for three months to, to practice my, my, my language and my physical skills. And started teaching a little bit as well. And at that point, we decided we were going to get married. So I asked Anna to marry me while we were in the Amazons. We moved back to the UK. Uh, I, you know, the interesting thing is I didn't believe in my skills. And this is one of the big things that I see with individuals now is I didn't believe in my skills. I didn't believe in what my resume said. Mm. Um, and I couldn't find a job. I just managed to be managing the customer services for Time and Fortune magazine. That's a pretty big deal. But never really played it up never really bigged it up or went and looked for jobs in my kind of my, my sphere or my arena and ended up going back to the bottom of the run and working in frontline banking um 
and then working my way back up to trainee branch manager, branch manager level. Uh, so starting going back into sales environments and getting back into leadership and just homing, honing my skills uh, of what I believe is good and bad leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and through that phase of in the fight and starting and banking and then moving into the insurance sector and contact centers is how important it is you know that people about people finance sector is about numbers at the end of the day 98 percent of the business out there in the finance sector is just about numbers they genuinely don't care about the people they like right. to say they do but they don't yeah. um, service so i saw absolutely is uh, and I saw a lot of bad leadership and I learned a lot of good stuff from diabolical leaders. Um, you know, individuals with serious neuroses that weren't looking after their own mental health, people that would attempt to do your monthly one-to-one at 25 past five when the branch closes at half past five. <laughs> um, you know, I've worked for leaders that had um, complaints of sexual harassment against them. And it, you see this uh, plethora of, of negative traits and think, okay, well, that, it makes me feel like this. So how do I want to treat people that are going to be in my care in the future? Right. As a result of that, you know, it started to craft how I started to speak to people in the future. Yeah, it's interesting that you took it that direction. When you, when you said that you, you know, had learned from some leaders, I initially thought you were going to come with the positive, but it sounds like you took more lessons from some of the negative leaders that you experienced more mm-hmm. than anything. Yeah. And I'll wrap that up into a kind of in a model later on because, you know, if someone's your manager or your boss or whatever, that they're in a position of power. At the end of the day, they're hierarchically, they're in a higher level than you. If you think you can go toe to toe with one of these characters in quite a lot of jobs, you're going to come off worse for the wear. Excuse me, now, so I'll put you on mute for two seconds. I'm going to cough. You're going to come up, you know, against these individuals. They've been working in the company longer than you. They probably know the processes better than you. They're going to make it very difficult for you. And if you're causing friction thoughtlessly, you're going to have a problem and end up losing your job. Right. Now, the other way to look at it, and I call this be multiplied. So the first B is behold, as in have a look and see actually what is going on with this individual. What is it they're showing you? What is it they're demonstrating to you? And it could be good, bad, whatever. But how I explain it to people is just have some gratitude for what these people are actually teaching you. Because if someone's teaching you something, whether you think it's good or bad, the moment you say thank you, you stop pointing your finger and accusing them of being good or bad or indifferent or whatever. So you go from behold to become, which is the second thing. So all the things that you've learned from them is what am I going to become as a result of the influences of this individual and what they're showing me? What is the positive opposite of what they're doing so that I can develop this? So you come up with these actions of things you can develop from them. And then the final B is be done. So all these ideas that you've come up with from that individual, what they've shown you, the the poor behaviors, the positive behaviors, all these things, what is it I'm going to put in place and then start incorporating that in the way that you actually work? and the way that you present yourself to the world. And you will find new ways to work better with those individuals, whether they've got kind of power um, struggles, whatever it is, you will find better ways to work with them because you're looking for ways to learn from them. And it will make your relationship stronger. That's a beautiful way of framing that. I think a lot of people get caught up in the emotion of it all, and it sounds as Mm. though the way that you structured this model 
it gives you a little agency in that you can take a moment and separate your emotions from the situation or even your emotions about the person and just realize that good and bad are judgments and that you can pull whatever you need to pull in that moment that's going to benefit you or others down the road. Exactly that. And what I taught people later on down the line is, no, and for me, if I'm your leader and I'm doing something you think actually that's, that's phenomenal, do it and do it better. Mm. If though I'm doing something that you don't agree with, doesn't fit with your ethics, doesn't work with the way that you work physiologically, emotionally, whatever, or the way that you, what you bring to the world, great. Do the positive opposite. Mm. So by... Um, almost as a guaranteed outcome if you're doing what i do well and you're doing it better and you're doing the other things you don't like and you're doing the positive opposite you will always be a better leader than i ever was you will supersede me mm-hmm. because you no know, leadership is like parenting when we are parents we don't have children so we can have they can be equal to or less than us we want children to have a better life than us we want them to supersede us we want them to earn more money than us so and it's the same for leadership when you've got people in your team and you tell them look do this do it better, do this, do the positive opposite, you will be a better leader than me. And I want you to do that. And you know, you have my blessing, please do it. Yeah, I think that that is such a beautiful way of framing that as well. However, in my experience, and especially in the corporate world, it seems as though there is a more scarcity mindset in terms of having people do better than you, especially if they're Correct. few. And it seems as though, I mean, at least it's this way in the States. Um, you know, I haven't had a, a, a jobby job for 20 years, but you know, when I was in that world, it seemed as though the better that I did, the more credit other people took for my work. They weren't necessarily Correct. interested in helping me advance. And um, I'm wondering if that was your experience uh, in, in the corporate world in the UK as well. A lot. And then, you know, there are difficult people out there. You know, I've, I've suffered the, the slings and arrows of being outspoken of knowing what I'm doing is, is the best possible thing to doing, but, you know, going about it the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, I also came to understand you know, the long game of what I was doing, which was necessary. Right. Now, the people that were in my teams and I was developing them up, I was teaching them how to get promoted. And a lot of those people that I was working with, that I was able to work with and teach those skills to directly, did supersede me. So when I left that organization, they were in higher paid jobs than I was, and they'd been there less time than I had because they, I had taught them the mistakes that I'd made in interviews. I taught them the way not to have a conversation. I taught them how to be more observing about their, their zone of expertise and genius. Mm-hmm. And because of they because they did everything that I did well, better, and because they did the things that I didn't do so well and they, they did the positive opposite, they were able to get to higher job positions than I did before I left that business. That's amazing. I'm wondering if you can give me an example of that. I I think a lot of people listening would very, would very much benefit from understanding what that actually looks like. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, obviously we want to be strategic about our conversations. We want to be strategic about, you know, what we say to whom, but also we want to provide yep. value to the business and to our coworkers and colleagues. So what is the balance there? What does that look like when you're trying to climb that corporate ladder? You know what, I think that the biggest thing that pops into my head when you're talking about climbing the corporate ladder, and this is what people get lost on, is they think, okay, I do 40 hours. This is my job, I do 40 hours. Do you know what, I'm going to do loads of overtime and show that I'm really enthusiastic. So I'm going to do 20 hours of overtime every week. But what people do make the mistake 
happens. They do 20 hours of the same work that they're doing the 40 hours. So they end up doing 60 hours of the same work. So what they're demonstrating is that, is that they're a really good worker. Fantastic. Now you're making it really difficult for me to promote you because it means I'm going to lose 60 hours, not 40 hours of work. Wow. What we need to be doing is actually thinking about it smarter. And even if you did, you know, two hours for free or five hours for free every week, but of the work of the person in the pay band higher than you. So you ask for jobs, ask for projects where you can start taking bites out of the pie and learning how to do the skills of the person above you. That way, you know, and even if you're doing it for free for a few months, you're building the skill set, but you're also building the examples and the stories that you're going to tell in your interview. So when the person says, can you give me an example of where you've done this job or had this conversation? Yeah, I did that last week, blah, 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 blah. You're now showing that you're already thinking one level higher because you've got the examples and you've got the experience. Mm. You know, no one is going to give you a job based on whether they think, oh, maybe he can do it. They're going to give it to someone who's competent, experienced, and capable. Man, that is so fucking powerful. I mean, honestly, when you when you said that, I knew immediately where you were going, and I hadn't ever thought about this. But when you say that, exactly, no one does. Yeah, when you <laughs> said that exactly right. It's uh, it's so true. If if you have someone who's doing a great job in capacity A, and they do capacity A plus B, well, you just want to keep them there. But if they're demonstrating yep. that they have a an aptitude to climb or to do more or to take on more responsibility. Hey, yep. that's a totally different animal and it definitely causes you, I, I can just put myself in that position and I can definitely see people um, that who work for me now that I could, uh, that are demonstrating now that they want to take on more and that's exactly how I think of them. They've got to be fulfilling the job that they're applying for. You've got to, you're not just dressing for the job that you want, you're actually doing the job that you want. So you've got clear examples. Here's the next level of that though. Is everyone's busy talking to their manager in order to get uh, get promoted. Everyone's talking to their manager about, okay, what's life like? Da, 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 da. But how many people have actually asked the question, who's actually doing the interview for that job? It's not going to be your manager interviewing you because your manager doesn't report. No, your manager reports to someone else. The person who your manager reports to is going to be doing the interviewing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what you have to start doing is start thinking two pay bands higher and start seeing the world from the position of the hiring manager so that when you have the conversation you can start talking about I'm doing this because it relates to this and I want to impact the business at this, at this level. So what we start doing is we start shifting our thinking two levels higher and we start talking a different type of language that relates to the person that's doing the interview and filling the interview with examples of where we're doing the job that we're actually applying for. Mm-hmm. That is powerful. And if I break that down in yeah, and if I break it down a different way, you know, if, if for anyone working in a contact center or job, um, kind of a production job, you can tell the people that have been in that job for less than six months. Because when you sit in the canteen, they will be having exactly the same conversations as the people that were there two years ago that have been in the job less than six months. Right. They will be complaining about the same types of customers, the same time of problems on the systems, the same time of problems with the machinery. What happens is, though, they start to intellectually kind of normalize and acclimatize. And they start to realize that actually no one's going to, these things are just normal. They stop talking about those things. So eventually, over a course of time, their thinking changes. Because the thinking changes, the language they use changes. So then when you look at someone as a manager or an operations manager, 
they're not complaining about the same things that someone who's only been in the business six months is. Right. Because they're thinking at a different level, which causes different words to come out of their mouth. 100%. The moment you realize that as a human being and go, okay, I'm working at this level and I want to be having these sorts of conversations, you shift the thinking, you'll start having that conversation, you'll start doing the actions based on that, on that choice of language. You will move faster through your progression. Mm-hmm. So in a way, it sounds like you're saying the people who matter or who might matter helping you you know, get where you want to go are actually listening to these conversations. Not, I mean, not that they're listening to you in the, in the cafeteria or what have you, but they're, they're listening for these, you know, vocabulary cues, you know, where's this person mentally, yes. where's this person spiritually in terms of what that they're doing and, you exactly know, that. do they have the capacity to take a step forward? Yep. Exactly that. Amazing. The vocabulary is everything. It's so funny, right? Like when you break into any, you know, new subject, um, whether it's something like you mentioned earlier, like capoeira or, you know, the business world or technology or whatever, everything you go into has its own vocabulary. And then of course, now that you mentioned it, when you break it down further and you make it more nuanced, the more you ascend, the more deeply you go into your chosen field or endeavor, you have a new vocabulary that comes with you there as well. And it makes, it makes perfect sure. sense that someone would key on that. And, you know, people say, oh, I, I don't know this, I can't do that. But when you start, you know, go and hang out in the groups, go on LinkedIn, find the different Facebook groups, hang out in spaces where people, you know, you want to associate with and hear the language that they're using. Mm-hmm. Read the books that these people recommend and you'll start to download that vocabulary and you'll start to talk and act in a different kind of way. And people will pick up on it. Mm-hmm. You know, like I say, someone in a job for less than six months talking and complaining about the same things as everyone else has done for the last 20 years is not going to be given a position of authority when they're complaining about, you know, squeaky door on level five. What did It's not going to happen. <laughs> right. Yeah, some things just don't matter, right, at the end of the day. And it's like, okay, at what level does this, does this complaint, you know, justify my, you know, my intention or my interest or my, my energy level on, on some, you know, on some plane? Yeah. Right. It's, it's funny that people focus on these little things, you know, and these little annoyances. And it's like you said, it's exactly true. I've seen it exactly as you describe, you know, people who've been there for a while, normal, normalize the little things and the people who can't take it, leave. And the people who want to be there, stick it out. You know, it's kind of the way it goes. Well, the the line that I heard, uh, there's two lines. One that guy, you know, you cannot activate solutional thinking while you're complaining. So you can't come up with new ideas where you're busy pointing your finger at every other problem. That's true, yeah. Uh, sure. And then the other one I learned a couple of years ago was this complaint, complaining is the glue that keeps you stuck to your circumstance. <laughs> I love that. I might steal that one from you for sure. <laughs> that was, that was, I learned that from a guy called Peter Sage and it, it, you know, it's just relevant constantly. Uh, it's such a visual, that's such a great visual though. I can just imagine that. I can see that cartoon in my head, you know. It's like, okay, yeah, just shut up and let's get on with it, you know. Yeah. Too funny. So how long did you end up spending in the corporate world before you decided to, you know, branch out and hang your own shingle? So I I got my first management job when I was 19 uh, in hospitality industry. Worked my way through different retail, hotels, contact center environments, bank managers. I have been teaching and coaching people over the last six, seven years, all inside the corporate space as well. So alongside my full-time job, delivering leadership development programs for external companies as a contract worker, and also with my own individual coaching clients. 
So that's been kind of developing over the last six, seven, eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the stuff that I've been teaching people how to get promoted and do all these things and, and increase their hourly rates uh, on all these kind of processes and ideas, I'm walking the talk. So eight weeks ago, I left my full-time job. I now do a, um, a part-time job, uh, three quarters of the hours that I was doing before and i'm getting physically more money than i did um in my full-time job amazing doing what i love doing sparking the imagination of individuals and teaching people uncommon skills in uncommon ways so that they can go and have incredible lives mm-hmm. so i was gonna say you know this is this is the journey this is the stepping stone i made decision three years ago that i was going to leave my full-time job but you can't just walk out of a job and burn the boats as the saying goes when you have a wife and you have a daughter that's right uh, and and you're responsible for making sure there's food on the the table and a roof over the heads you have to be strategic about this stuff right so in that time period you know i got really focused um i developed my skills in in business building in marketing in in writing uh, and all these areas what and alongside my day job to give me enough space to be able to walk out of that and go and do something that I'm passionate about that's in my zone of expertise and genius mm-hmm. changes people's lives. Oh, 100%, yeah. I mean, it, is this the result of you ultimately defining, you know, your purpose and your passion for your life? I mean, I'm assuming yes. that this, this, this three-year plan is part of that, right? Yes. So, so where are we now? Seven years ago, I went on the journey of finding my purpose and understanding what it was and how to articulate it. Um, You know, that was probably a two-year journey to get down to the language. And my purpose is I am challenging people's thinking so that they can take control of key elements of their lives, expand the greatest version of who they are and become more incredible than yesterday. That's me, 100%. First words that come out of my mouth every single morning, every time I go into a meeting, every time I go into whatever, it's with that intention to challenge someone's thinking so that they can become more incredible than yesterday. Beautiful. Then when I started to learn about goal setting and and how to structure goals, I asked the question, well, what is the biggest possible physical manifestation of my purpose? And I learned a lot of stuff from Tom Billio and Impact Theory and and some of the key lines that come out of that really pushed a lot of my buttons, but in a really positive way. The one that I always come back to was um, the David Eagleman interview. It's one of the earlier ones of Impact Theory. So, look, Right at the end of that interview with David Eagleman, Tom Billu asked the question, what's the impact you want to have on the world? And David Eagleman says, one of my smaller projects, I want to invent the next human sense. And I had to rewind it and listen to it maybe five or six times to actually hear him say those words again and again. And because he was so convicted to it, he was, you know, this is something he's going to do. So I had this kind of known reality of what coaching is. Here's the coaching box, life coaching, business coaching, whatever, yeah. That's the known bubble. But if I go over here to this sphere of complete unknown, what's in this sphere of coaching? What is it I have to do on a daily basis or have to be aiming for over here that's going to fundamentally shift the world? Mm-hmm. A few months, few a year later, a couple of years later, maybe a year later, um, I had the chance to meet Tom Billion. And I asked him the question. Um, it was kind of funny. I was in front of 60, 70 people, and I tried to ask how I get 60 to 90 minutes in his diary to coach him as you know, as someone who was making the decision to be a coach. Right. So basically, it was like me asking my first girlfriend to the dance um, <laughs> with as much of a squeaky of voice as I had when I was about 12, um, <laughs> even though I was a fully grown man, trying to face up to Tom Billion. Right. 
and and he you know he gave me some some advice around that uh, about adding crushing value growing people's community helping people to understand how by helping you how it helps them become more successful through your successes these sorts of things mm-hmm. and i came away from that meeting and it was the benjamin franklin quote and what is it right things worth um do things worth no, right things worth reading or do things worth writing about right and what came out of it was you know, write things worth reading or do things worth getting interviewed by Tom Billy for. Right. So this combination of ideas is, okay, how far can I take this? This is my purpose challenge. People think they can become more incredible than yesterday. Boom. What's the biggest manifestation of that? The biggest manifestation is I am positively and successfully influencing the growth and development of over 100 million people through my one-to-one coaching and group training so that they can connect to a deeper sense of purpose creating compelling goals are connecting to the people around them and creating a positive legacy time and time again that's amazing my friend so all this just uh, came from asking better questions it sounds like yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and, like deeply you know deep kind of focus and understanding goal setting you know again peter sage dropped this one with me which kind of really rocked the boat for me is if you know how to achieve your goal when you set it it's too small because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it's already in existence it's already real it's being set from a place of fear if it's not challenging it's not going to change you and it's not about achieving the goal it's about the person you have to become in order to be to make the goal a reality that's right yeah yeah for sure so i mean if you if what makes me go ahead okay sorry. i was gonna say well, what makes me feel really uncomfortable okay it's a, it's a business where i impact 100 million people it's a business where i'm generating 2.5 million pounds a year as a solopreneur right i love that but it's so true. I mean, when you when you're talking about the size of the goal, I guess maybe size is the wrong word, but the your ability to accomplish whatever goal it is that you set, if it already exists, you're just being lazy if it if it hasn't been done yet, right? Correct. Yep. Fixed mindset stuff. You know, it's got it's got to push your buttons. It's got to pull the levers. It's got to emotionally, physically, spiritually, mentally energize you. You pull you forward. Uh, you know, electrify you to make it happen. Because if it doesn't, and it's boring. You're not even going to get out of bed to even like tinker with it. You know? That's right. So when you say those words to yourself, when you repeat your purpose to mm-hmm. yourself, you feel that electricity that you're referring to, yeah? It, it has habituated. It is in me. Now, there are times when I, um, you know, I don't always get time to do this every morning as, as, a, as, a, as a father and as a, as a working person. There are times though when I see the milestones very clearly in my head. I see the stage lights. I see walking on stage. I see the the faces of the people that have impacted when I'm talking from stage, mm-hmm. and it reduces me to tears. Mm. Wow! Because I understand how important it is. Because of working in the environments I've lived in, you know, worked in, and that mediocrity, and you see the anxiety and the depression, and uh, it, it frustrates the, the absolute hell out of me. Mm-hmm. This potentiality. No, it only takes one person to invent a light bulb. It only takes one person to, um, you know, rally the whole world in climate change. Now, if you work in a contact center with three, four hundred people, and ninety-eight percent of them feel demoralized because they don't think they're worth that they, they, they have zero self-worth, if you can mobilize just one of them, let alone three hundred of them. What would happen in the world? Right. Yeah, there's no telling, right? There's no telling what one person on fire can do. One one of my mentors uh, used to always tell me, um, 
and I think he wrote this in his book, he talks about how he would rather work with someone who's going 100% the wrong direction than someone who's standing mm-hmm. still, because at least that person's applying their energy towards something, right? And if I can get them turned and put that energy in the positive direction, then everything will be right with the world. And I think exactly I think a lot of times what uh, I see when I look at, you know, um, the average person or the person who works a job for a living, what have you, is there's just no excitement. There's no fire. There's 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 just a, there's just a state of maintenance. It's like, OK, let's just maintain what we have. We're comfortable enough to where we don't really have to push and we're not really motivated enough to push anyway. So we'll just be cozy or comfy enough right here where we're at. And I think those are the people that are most difficult to get to move in any direction. And I'm wondering as a coach, if, if you've seen that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is. They are difficult. Simon Sinek said it recently. He said, not everyone's meant to be a visionary leader. And I don't believe it. You know, I believe it. I believe wholeheartedly a lot of things that Simon says, and I agree with it. But that one thing, no, I think everybody has the visionary leader in them. The moment you become a parent, you become a visionary leader. The moment you own a dog and you're throwing a ball for that dog, then you're feeding you become a visionary leader. Mm-hmm. The moment you have a dream inside of you, the moment you are born, whatever, you are a visionary leader. There is something that you need to manifest and create. But we, we, we have that potentiality stifled out through the work that we're taught to do. And we go to school in an outdated factory model to create factory workers. And we learn three things. Turn up on time, do as you're told, and live up to someone else's expectation. That's right. And it just gets you know, crushed out of us because we don't want to feel um, different or unique or special. We get told to conform and kind of sit in line. Mm-hmm. And it, it's that, that that stops the thinking. And it, it's, you, you need to have people that have got the drive or determination to then want to go and do something. But then when we shift out of the work that we're taught to do, it becomes the work that you're told to do. And as I said earlier, as my dad triggered that with a low level of, of questioning skills, it became the work that I was told to do. I knew I was designed or meant to be doing more, but couldn't put my finger on it. it I then felt like I was being told what to do. And then mm-hmm. the frustrations and the agitation comes up. Right. And it's... The analogy of the blue pill and the red pill from the matrix. You know, you take the blue pill, you go back to sleep, you wake up and it's a dream or whatever you want to tell yourself. Mm-hmm. You take the red pill and you just get, you get to find out how far the rabbit hole goes. Right. But the fact of the matter is, if you're already questioning if there's a blue pill or a red pill, you've already taken the red pill. There isn't any going back at that point in time. And it's only up to you of how fast and how far you want to go down that rabbit hole to see what your potentiality is. Uh, now, what I've learned with working with myself and individuals is this. Everyone says, oh, it's fear of unknown. No. We all know that stuff's outside of our comfort zone, and everyone says we're fear- fearful of it. And then people say, oh, it's the fear of letting go of what we already know. And actually, what I've found kind of in, you know, coming up for 42 years is actually it's the fear of acknowledging what you could have done with the time that you had on this planet hmm. and, having to, and having to look into the face of that and own up to that in yourself that you are scared of, not you, most people are scared of, I was, and to acknowledge that and go, do you know what? And not looking at it from um, a regret point of view, but learning to look at it as a fuel point of view. Do you know what? This is what could have been the potential. This is what I'm going to do with what I've got now. Right. And acknowledging that, embracing it, and flying with it. Yeah, as you as you laid that out, I was thinking immediately that, you know, wouldn't that be fuel more so than fear, right? Or am I missing the point of that statement is both 
But we get taught to live in fear. We get taught the fear of not enough. We get taught the fear of losing love. You know, these are these are fears that we learn from an early age. We learn them kind of in conditional love at the age of three or four. Mm-hmm. We're only born with two fears, fear of loud noises and the fear of falling. That's it. Everything else is learned. Right. But that fear is, you know, we're taught that fear is a bad thing. We're taught that failure is a bad thing. We're taught that it's painful. Don't do it. Um, Zig Ziglar, I think, said, what is it? False evidence appearing real. Right. That was his uh, acronym for fear. Well, when I look at it, you know, is when you get that sense of fear, it means you're going in the right direction. Fear, doubt, and uncertainty are the flags that you're going in the right direction because it makes you feel uncomfortable. So when we talk about fear and we're talking about F-E-A-R, follow every arresting revelation. So when you get that sensation coming up, it means that you need to move into it. Mm, definitely. Lean forward into it so that you can become the person who's capable of handling whatever it is that's causing that fear in you, correct? Exactly that. In other words, Bruce Lee said, do not, you know, pray not for an easy life. You know, pray, pray for the skill sets to endure a hard one. Right, right. That's beautiful. I love that. So, so we talked a little bit about leadership, and I think this is one of those sort of esoteric concepts that people have trouble really grasping. I'm wondering if you, in your experience, uh, can give us a little bit of a concrete idea of what leadership actually is or what it is to you. <laughs> That's a big question. It is a big question. <laughs> I've, you know, I, I used have... I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen or heard a good answer. I'm not, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm just curious. Do you know what? And I probably had it. I had some sort of uh, answer to this question before. But leadership for me is about evolution. Right now, my sensations of what it what it feels like now, it is about evolution. It's about being superseded. It's about gifting the generations after you something bigger and showing them how to do things so that they can do it better than you. Mm-hmm. It's about taking you know leadership is an internal thing, and it's about understanding that um, it's an internal dialogue it's an internal thing that you you have to lead yourself so that you can demonstrate it to other people so they can do it for themselves as well and getting out of your own way as well as getting out of other people's way so they can move forward at the same time you know what's interesting about your response is that at no point did you mention it means that you have a bunch of people following you and no i find that a lot of people think that that's what leadership means and I noticed that in your response, you mentioned, you know, evolution, you mentioned the word internal. And I fully believe that I agree with you there. I think leadership is just leadership of self. And then whatever happens in terms of people coming along with you, that is the result of you leading you. And I think a lot of people miss that. So it was really interesting to hear your take on that. I think we're more or less on the same page. I think deeper reflection on that response. I think when you look externally, there is there is huge numbers of what we would probably encapsulate as poor leadership or lost leadership or incoherent, uneducated leadership going on out there. So the multitude of when you're looking at corporations or you're looking at businesses, this is not the stuff we get taught at school. In the majority, you don't learn how to communicate. You don't get. You don't learn teamwork. You don't learn how to give feedback or ask the right questions. You don't learn at school how to fail faster, forward, and more frequently. So when you look externally, there's a large amount of, I'd say, poor leadership. What leadership really needs to be looking at is the internal dialogue. You know, is who do you bring to the conversation? 
And it doesn't matter what the conversation is. It doesn't matter what the, the outcome is. It doesn't matter what uh, situation you're heading to. It's, it's the first thing in leadership is to remember who you bring to that conversation. And that is yourself. That is the internal leader. That is self-leadership. Because if you can't lead yourself, how can you lead anybody else? And it's when they talk about parenting. Now, if you want to raise children that have got you know, great levels of self-esteem and confidence, if you haven't got that yourself, you can't give that to your children. You cannot give your children more than you've got yourself. Mm. So it's important that as a, as a leader, we are cultivating that internally so that we can demonstrate that. You know, they, they say, you know, be the role model. You know? Simon Sinek also says, in this, this is popping into my head, you know, be the leader you wish you had. Hmm. Right. So, and, and I said before about looking at those poor leaders and, and using them as the role model. You now look at them, see what they're doing, and then you, you know, use them as the reference point to be the leader you wish you had. Hmm. And more importantly, and when we talk about this self-leadership, you know, be the leader you know the world needs. That starts internally and you start to bring it externally. Now, it's all about heart. It's all about soul. It's all about the mindset and the skill set you have that you've developed and you know that you need to give to the world in, help, in order to help them rise up. That is then, I was, go, go, go. That's the question. Go ahead. I was going to say then, you know, it is then the responsibility of, of the leader, of the parent, to create an environment or um, ecosystem where they will be naturally superseded. And this is, you know, it's about the parenting piece again. We as parents, when we have children, we do not want our children to be equal to or less than us. And it's the same as our teams as leaders. When we're developing that in people and being a great leader, we know we will be superseded. We know that as the kind of king archetype, the sovereign, that at some point we will have to step down in order for someone else to take that seat and in order to lead that tribe and that group forward as well. So we don't create ourselves as this ideological reference point that's always going to stay there. No, we create a space that we can show others how to do it and do it better than us to move beyond us so mm-hmm. that we can help grow the leaders around us. Yeah, I love how you brought the. I love how you brought it back to parenting. I, th- I feel like, and I'm sure you've seen this in the UK because people are people no matter where you go. But here in the US, mm-hmm. you know, people have it so good, and I think that a lot of times they they have a desire to make sure that the people around them don't suffer. And of course, you know, some of the people that we want to not suffer the most would be our children or our offspring. But there's this mm-hmm. idea that if you take away someone's pain and you do it regularly, that you end up perpetually weakening them. And I've seen this a lot in uh, young parents, parents my age or or less. Um, A lot of times just kids don't have the ability to cope. And and, And you can pair this out to any organization, whether it's a family or a business or, you know, anything. But I'm wondering if you've seen the same thing happening in and around you and around your your circle of friends or or colleagues and and, and people that you come in contact with um, in your life. I have, and I think there's multiple, one situation kind of popped in some head was uh, my daughter was on a swing. This was a couple of years ago. She's now seven. I think this was around when she was four. We were at the playground at the park. She's on the swing and she's on, you know, it's one of the first times she's on the normal kind of adult swing without the safety bars and I'm pushing her. And then she decides that she's going to look backwards to look at what I'm doing. But in doing so, she loosens her grip and she falls from about four feet up face first onto the, onto the, the rubber matting on the floor. Mm. 
thankfully we have rubber matting these days you know it's not like you know the wwf back in the 80s when it was concrete <laughs> all around the edges you know so she falls face first yeah she splits her lip you know she's crying but at that point you know i can't take away that pain all i can do is show her how to move through that pain as quickly as possible so she can get on with getting back on with the swing um I don't want to take the pain away from her because if I try and take that sensation away, she won't have any reference point to hold on to the swing in the, in the right way or to look where she's going and do those things. Um, and it's it's the same for coaching uh, and and some of that. You know, I don't want to take people's pain away. Now, my experiences from uh, toxic relationships, you know, drug misuse, these sorts of things. Okay, there's going to be people out there doing it. People are going to make that decision because that's their journey. I'm not here to deprive people of the journey. I'm not here to deprive my daughter of the journey. I'm here to give her potentially some sort of manual that will help her navigate it faster so that she can have that experience, develop from it, and go forward. Mm, that's yeah. beautiful. And as, and as you said, you know, you get the whole helicopter parenting thing. You get these overly zealous individuals that don't want their children to experience this. Um, Again, prime example, I'm in the swimming bath, there's a, um, a young girl in the showers and her mum standing right next to her in the shower, getting everything for her, helping, you know, here's your shampoo, here's this, da, 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 da. and she's fully clothed. And I'm like, well, you're getting wet and you're in, get, walking in the showers and you know, the water can just go. And it's even these small things. And, and my brain as the coach, kind of as in the psychology side of things, is I'm looking at just, you know what, just let the girl go and get it. She can work out what she needs to take to the shower. If she does it this time, she's not going to ask you to do it the next time, is she? That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's such a prime example of, I think, just sheer weakness or fear on the, uh, on the part of a parent, just not allowing their child to experience what it means to be responsible for what it takes to do a shower. I mean, come on. That's exactly. And, it, you know, it, and, and like I say, it's such a small detail, but then you wonder how it magnifies in other situations. Yeah, exactly. I, I literally just did a video for my team about how details matter. It's funny that you say that because like you said, how that manifests itself in such a small thing is going to come back around in a larger, in a larger way. And if you can't handle the small stuff, how can you possibly expect to handle the larger things that show up in life? Yeah. Amazing. Agreed. Amazing. So now that you've uh, transitioned from, you know, the job world and you've taken on more of a role in your coaching business and you're starting to grow mm -hmm. this and build this out, you know, what have you experienced personally? You know, a lot of people I think want to do this, want to do what you've done in terms of transitioning away, but I'm sure that, um, you've experienced some hardships or maybe even some fear around doing that. I'm wondering if you could speak to a little bit of that experience and just let people know how you've dealt with it and that it is in fact possible. Mm. Do you know what the biggest fear I think comes up is from your significant other halves, from your the family of your your own family and also those of your significant other half. You know, I'm working a full time job. I have security. We have a daughter. We've opted to homeschool, so I'm the only income earner in the house. The moment that I say or you know create a plan or intonate that I'm going to leave my the security of my, my full time job. To go and you know seek my fame uh, through self-employment and freelancing. If you do not have a tangible plan or something that you can give to other people, instantly everyone's fight and flight uh, mechanisms kick in. The instantly the family will all their fears will come up, and they will start to um, relay that stuff to you. 
because you're pushing them outside of their comfort zone. You're pushing them into the unknown. And they don't want to see you fail based on their map of the world or based on what they think you know, potentially has happened to them. So their nerves get put on edge, which then puts you know, your partner's nerves on edge. It puts other people's. You know, the thing that I've learned is, okay, I'm a, a big thinker. I like to think in their grand visions. But at the same time, people do need those details. They need to have a roadmap of what's going to happen. They need to have an idea of the journey you're going on. So it gives them kind of some sort of mental security so that they know that you know, there's a physical security for their nearest and dearest. My part in that is, you know, great, I'm a big thinker. I'm a dreamer. I, you know, I can see the big goal. I can see 50 years from now. I can see 100 years from now. But when you tell people that and they can't see the journey you're going on because you haven't told them what the, the, the waypoints are on that, it makes them nervous. So before you go running into anything, you start you know, blurting out and running, letting your mouth run away with you with all these grand designs in your head and your heart, is making sure that before you share that with anybody, that you understand what the roadmap looks like, that you can answer some of those questions that you're going to be hit with. Right, right. Um, so it now sounds I've got like, some... Go, go, go. I was just going to say, it sounds like, uh, I mean, a lot of times people you know, will lay out, uh, you know, a vision for what they want to create. But it sounds like what, what I'm hearing you say is that you're taking it one step further and you're offering up, you know, here's what I want to create, but I also have a strategy to see it yep. through. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. You know, I've got some really um, solid people in my family with great experiences in, in business and in sales and these sorts of areas. So it's all wonderful and well and good me coming out there with these, you know, grand visions. It, I don't have the technical um, wherewithal around you know, certain elements of business. No, I'm a coach. I deliver great content in leadership. Does that mean I'm any good at social media marketing? No. Does that mean you know that I can do the accounting side of work? I can do the basic accounting, but it's not my area of expertise. You know, it's about having these elements. Okay, who are you going to get in to do this? At what level of learning? You know, what are the, the structures and the foundations that you need to have in place? So that when someone says, well, what's happening? Well, actually, no, it's a, it's a three-year plan. It looks like this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to speak to these people. Rather than dropping the, the bombshell and everyone thinks all of a sudden next week you're going to walk out of your job and leave your family without a home um, and without an income. Right, right. So it sounds like you've done a great job of obviously managing expectations of the people around you. And it sounds like that's a prerequisite so that you can ensure that you have some level of support from the people who care about the people that you're supposed to be taking care of. But what happens when, or have you had an experience whereby, you know, something didn't go to plan and then you had to, you know, sort of backtrack and go plan B and deal with that? Or has it just been smooth sailing? You know what? And initially when I came up with this big dream of, of what I was going to achieve, I didn't have that structure and strategy in place. I didn't have, no, I, I, Everything starts with a thought, you know, and everything starts with a vision. Um, so from, when I was saying this, people said, well, you need this. What's, it, what's this? Have you got this? I didn't have any of those things. But I learned that from people, you know, almost the naysayers, asking me about this stuff. Okay, well, maybe I need to go and ask, ask you know, find out some more information about that thing that you know is, is causing some doubt and uncertainty for you. Often, you know, it's a really important thing. People tell you you can't do something. Well, actually, they're telling you what they couldn't do, not what you can't do. And it's based on their map of the world. So when we hear it through that 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 lens, as it were, um, what we can do is just shift it. Okay, you're telling me this. Great, I can use that information to go on to the next thing and, and go and get some understanding around that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, 
and never take anyone else's can't or no as a, a as that we know as a stop point for you. You know, the, the analogy that I use, and I say, you know, the the fallen man is the lesson learned, not the reason to go home. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about this, is when you th- I, I listen to a gentleman. Uh, I wish I could remember his name. Justin, cannot remember the last name. But he climbed Everest. But what he said is, when you go up Everest, there are people that have died on Everest for whatever reason, and it is too costly to bring those people back down. But when you go up the mountain. And I've never done this, so I'm just going by his story. When you go up the mountain, though, when you're going up with the Sherpas, they will use these people as markers, as reference points to call down to base camp to tell uh, tell them where you are in relation to the top of the mountain. So, you know, like green legs, you know, we're at green legs now, or we're at blue jacket or red rope or whatever. Wow. So they use those fallen people as the waypoints in relation to the top of the mountain on their journey. Not the crikey, you can get you get up there, you can see the first dead person and go, Do you know what? I'm out, I'm done. This is too much for me. Right. But it, it, they're reference points. This is what they did. This is what happened to these poor individuals at, you know, at this point in time. Let's make sure we learn from that lesson so that we don't do the same thing and we can continue up the mountain. Mm. So that's, for me, it's, you know, it's making sure that we're hearing the right words coming out of those loved ones' mouths because they're doing it because they love us. Right. You know, not because they want to hold us back. They just don't want to see us get hurt or fail or feel pain you know, unnecessarily. Yeah, and, um, and too, I think a lot of it comes down to, you know, at least in my personal experience, when people see me change, people close to me see me change, it, it's almost a, it, it almost serves as a threat to that relationship because, you know, now I'm not showing up as the same person that I was and therefore those people that I knew aren't really sure how to relate to me anymore. Yeah, yeah. And now you're changing and, and potentially some of those individuals, you know, they're thinking, well, maybe you're going to outshine them. Maybe you're going to make them look bad by achieving what they couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And it, again, it comes back to that gratitude piece, isn't it? Ask, we ask people loaded questions. We kind of know that some of them are going to tell us what we can't do. So we ask them a question, tell us what we can do. Okay, so I'm thinking about doing this. Give me three suggestions in order to make this a success. And we steer their thinking so they become involved in your success not involved in the holding you back to keep you safe. Oh, that's beautiful. And we give them a steer to give them a focal point so they're then getting involved in our journey. And it's, it's super handy, especially when we, we, the human brain's hardwired for negativity. And we're going to have a lot of naysayers. When we, when we have big visions and we throw stuff out there, we're going to expect people to really ask, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to have those words tumble out of your mouth? Uh, or I think delusions of grandeur, whatever. We know they're going to happen. So be choosy and be picky about what part of the vision you share with people. When you go to you know, get counsel from people, listen to what they say and use that information to come and learn more about maybe what they're telling you you need to do or you can't do. And also steer their question by giving them you know, a focal point. You know, tell me three things that are going to help me make this more successful. So we get that. them involved in it. I love that. I love the fact that you're getting them involved. I think sometimes that can be difficult with some of the most negative, you know, the people who, you know, weren't necessarily exposed to some of the development that you've, that you've been exposed to. And it's, you're asking them to change in the moment, but if you can enroll them, that man, that would be super key right there. That just seems like it would be the way to go and, and, and live in that space of beauty where you really have genuine gratitude for one another, but also support. And I think a lot of times people forget that sometimes you can't always rely on the people closest to you for that support. Mm. And there may be, you no, know, depending where you are in your journey, I was saying that mom was very strategic because we have, we're a single income family. We've got a daughter. 
Um, and you have to be strategic, I think, at a certain point in life. You know, if you're in your 20s and you've moved out and you need to move back home, you know, look, I've got this plan, I've got this great idea. Can I move back in with my parents? Can I move in with an aunt or uncle or whatever so that I can actualize this? Mm-hmm. You know, they need to understand the journey is going because otherwise they just think you're going to be couch surfing for the next 20 years and they never know when you're going to leave. <laughs> so you're kind of giving them an end point to play to as well. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but, but then when you get a bit older, you, know, you have to be strategic with it. You know, I've, I've, I've lived the life that I was educated to live. I've done 20 years of management and leadership, but I've played it based on the constructs of reality that we're all indoctrinated in. You know, go to school, turn up on time, do as you're told, live up to someone else's expectation, go and get a job, work nine to five, get promoted, so on and so forth, repeat as necessary, retire when you're 70, teach your kids to do the same. Right. When you've gone through that construct of reality and all of a sudden you hit kind of 36, 37, and most people kind of in the 40s get to this point of, shit, maybe I've got less years in front of me, you know, and I've got, I've got behind me now, mm-hmm. actually I need to step it up a gear. If I want to do something of, of significance, of meaning, of purpose, I need to start making m- momentum and movement now. Right. So when you've played in the construct of the, of the known reality that we were indoctrinated in, you then have to do things a little bit more strategically and then unpick certain things because there's no way that I could just walk out of a full-time job and expect my family to sustain on welfare payments or my family or my wife's family to bail us out just because I wasn't happy in my full-time job. Right, right. It has to be strategic. It has to be thought out. It may take you a couple of years to get to that point. Um, but you have to go through those stages. And you asked the question as well, you know, where did you fall down? You know what it was? It was the goal. It was telling people what my vision was too early. And, and I'll give you the prime example of this. So I've gone through a, a five-month consultation with my day job to basically do what I'm doing now externally and one-to-one. To basic, uh, well, I designed a, a coaching program with working with groups of leaders inside the business, 80% coaching, 20% leadership development program, teaching and training. I went through this consultation and said, look, it's going to be like this. I'm going to work with these leaders at this level and do this and da-da-da. Set it all out beautifully. It went on for five months. And everyone's telling me, yeah, fantastic. We know we've got a problem. We could do with this help. And I get to the end of it. And uh, one of the final hurdles, she says, we know we've got a problem, but we're not going to take you up on your offer. Mm. So we get to the end of this consultation and the, the director says, love your energy, Nathan. Thanks for everything you've done and thanks for all the help you've been. Please carry on doing this inside your role, but we're not going to take this idea forward. And, I, and he says, I fully appreciate you. May, that means you may have to leave the business to fulfill your career objectives. And I said, absolutely does. So I said to my boss at the time, I said, look, this is the information I've got. This is the answer I've got. Um, this is what I'm doing. I'm going to be out of here in three months' time. Beautiful. I love the black well, and white commitment to that. That's uh... it. What? Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. But this is the this is the the, the rub of it, Jason. So I'm, I say three months. I'm a great coach. I know what I'm doing. I know my content. I get results. But nobody knows who I am. I have zero credibility. I have zero following. How the hell am I going to get out of my full time job in three months' time? So I start shooting my mouth up, telling everybody that I'm going to leave in three months and I'm going to go and do this and I'm going to be a phenomenal coach and blah 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 blah. Well, three months later, what am I doing? Not a lot other than my full-time job because I didn't know what I didn't know when I said three months before. Mm-hmm. 
that I was going to be leaving my job. So you go through this wealth of learning experience. But it then took me probably another two years in order to actually leave that full-time job because I went through the development, okay, how to set up you know, Instagram, how to rebuild your LinkedIn profile, how to connect with people, what software you can use, how to build courses, how to deliver courses, all the stuff that I didn't know when I said I was going to leave the business in you know, three months' time, it's actually taken me two years, two and a half years to really get my head around all that content Sure. so that I'm in a strong enough position to do that. But I had to go through probably another two or three months' worth of pain after I'd gone around telling everyone I was going to leave on December 31st, 2017 because everyone kept saying to me, oh, Nathan, I thought you were leaving. And I felt like the idiot for having told them my intentions and actually not being able to follow through on it. You know, <laughs> so that's that's my pain point. And now I teach people: look, you know, they say don't tell people your goals. I say tell the right people your goals. Mm-hmm. Tell the people that are going to support you and making that happen. That are going to be your accountability. That are going to be your support mechanism. Thing. Just don't go telling everybody because nobody really. You know, most people don't care. They just most of them are looking at you thinking. Who do you think you are to call that out? Who do you think you are to call your shots? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think there's one caveat to that that has been powerful and I've seen it in other people's lives in my own. And that is if it takes you saying, you know, I'm out of here in three months for you to get leverage over your own actions, then you did the right mm-hmm. thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And it sounds like ultimately, you know, having that experience did help propel you forward. So you know, in some sense of the word, if, if, for example, I need to create a program and have it ready for launch by, you know, February 1st, for example, if I don't pick a date and make it public, I know within myself, a lot of times I won't gain leverage over myself because the reality is my life is good. Like I don't have to do it. Right. So if I'm not, if I'm not finding ways to gain leverage over myself, eh, it makes it more difficult to move. But if I commit publicly, man, you know, it's just like you said, it's like, okay, well, maybe I'm going to feel kind of silly if I don't have this done. And now all of a sudden I'm leveraging a negative program inside me, which is, oh, I have to look good to other people. If I'm, I'm not going to mm-hmm. look good to other people if I don't get this done. Right. So this is one way I can use yeah. that in a positive fashion. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I agree with that. And I, I think is the part that I learned from that. And again, I teach other people this now. I teach them how to get their, to make their 12 month plan strategic. I teach them how to get the daily activities that are going to bring it to life. And I'm not one for making goals realistic. I don't believe in realistic goals. I think goals should be astronomical or inspiring and staggering. And I think you make, you make your objectives smart. You make them realistic. When I, you know, is like I say, you have that accountability in place. But also go and do your, you know, your, your, your research. Go and find out, you know, ask some of those key questions. Find out what you don't know. And use your accountability buddies to push you in the right direction. Okay, where are you in relation to this? Where are you in relation to this? Okay, how are you moving? What are you doing? You know, unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there. If you go and tell too many of the wrong people, they'll want to put a lot of negative energy into what you're doing. And, and there's a lot of people out there that will, you know, break under that negative um, intention. hundred percent. I won't tell you the action I need to take. You're spot on with that, my friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as you continue to grow into this role, this business that you're creating, you know, mm-hmm. what does it look like for you in terms of the value provision that you're giving to other people? 
I know you have an amazing mission and purpose. I'm wondering if you could just mm-hmm. share that with us and tell us a little bit more um, of the granularity around the value you're going to be bringing to the market. Yeah. So as I said earlier, the purpose, the absolute clarity on my purpose is about positively challenging people's thinking so they can become more incredible than yesterday. And my goal is, is I am positively and successfully influencing the growth and development of over 100 million people through my one-to-one coaching and group training. The area of expertise that I've come from, my zone of genius and my zone of expertise is leadership. It is predominantly contact centers at this point in time and production areas. And it's about helping people tap into their zone of expertise, their genius. Everyone has potential. Everyone has purpose. Yet, especially in contact center environments, especially in those spaces, and we have it drummed out of us. We go to work, we clock in, you know, we tune out, and then we make a mess of things because we're not engaging with ourselves internally, let alone wholeheartedly with the people around us. The granular detail of what I'm doing now is helping people tap into that. Right now, it is about helping leaders double their income or half their work week so they can actually spend or create high-quality time with the most important people in their lives. Mm -hmm. That's what I've done myself. That's what I'm doing now. I am walking the talk. And that's what I've been teaching other people to do. So now it's a 12-week coaching program that works one-to-one. And I take you from start to finish through that journey of finding out what your zone of expertise is, finding out what it is that excites you, helping you to tap into some of that purpose. Not too deep, but deep enough to make you want to come out of your shell and start playing in that space. Mm -hmm. Getting you... You know, moving in a direction where you're looking at jobs, you're looking at possibilities, you're looking at promotions and getting people outside of that comfort zone and going for the interviews and applying for jobs and rebuilding their, their resume and using your resume as a personal development tool. Mm. So this start to finish is 12 weeks helping people push themselves outside the comfort zone to double their income or half their work week. That's Stage one for me at the moment. I love it. Stage two. Yeah, it, and it's, you know what? It's just, these are uncommon skills, as I think I've said before, and I'll say it a million times probably before I die. They're uncommon skills taught in uncommon ways. Mm-hmm. And we live in this space, space of fear of, you know, let's not apply for the job. Because if I get promoted, maybe the people I work with will think less of me. Or let's not apply for the job because what if I don't get the job and my family thinks less of me? Wow. Well, you know, these are just stories in our own head. We just do this time and time again to hold ourselves back. Mm-hmm. But when we start tapping into actually who who are we at a genetic level? What are we designed to do? What who is us at our best when we're playing in the space? And actually, when we start doing that, it makes it easier to get promoted. It makes it easier to put yourself outside of your comfort zone and go for an interview and develop some skill sets. Mm-hmm. So this is that's stage one, and then stage two. Um, is about a six-month leadership program that I'm developing up. I'm looking to run that in 2021. Um, and then 2022, I've got a 12-month leadership program. This is super high-end, super um, propagation stage at the moment with some interesting science-based stuff going on in and around that as well. But that's probably, you have to keep you posted and, and watch um, watch this space for that one. Definitely, definitely. We'll have to uh, jump back on and talk about it as it emerges. Yes, yeah, it's very exciting. I'm trying not to talk too much. Again, it's that goal thing. I'm trying not to talk about it, but I'm so excited I want to share it with the world, but everyone's going to be like, no. 
All right. Don't do that. <laughs> we'll keep it nice and fuzzy for the next year or so <laughs> until we until you make yeah. it public, right? That's amazing, yeah, yeah, yeah. brother. So such needed, uh, such a needed uh, service that I believe that you're going to be providing. And I'm curious, how will you measure success as you go forward in your business? There's two measurements. One is, as you know, the leadership is about showing people the way. It's about being there, the light that shows other people the capacity. Right now, I'm doing three quarters of the hours, and I've increased my salary. I'm showing people through my existence what's possible. My measurement of success is looking at the people I connect with, the people that I've helped, and the messages that come from them. Um, I did a speaking event, just a short one in an evening a couple of months ago. Um, I was talking to one of the guys, oh, coming to the next one, which is this Wednesday. He said, oh, I'm not able to. I've got a new job. Um, based on what you taught us in the last one, I've just got promoted and I've got 11 grand pay rise. You know, it's, it's that even those drops, those individual ones where someone takes their salary and it adds, you know, 70, 80% increase to it because they stepped out of their comfort zone and played in their potential. Mm-hmm. And it's about whatever the level is that people are playing, they're tapping into that thing. You know, they're tapping into the the fire that they bring, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, from a genetic point of view. And then when we talk, how's things going? Oh, I'm doing this, 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 and this, or I'm doing this and this, and my life's changed like this, and I'm getting more time with my family. Or what? those are my measurements of success. You know, it's not about me bigging myself. It's not from my – it's because I want to see people flourish. I want to see them develop. I want them to supersede me. Mm-hmm. I want them to go further and do their own version of Incredible. Amazing. Amazing. So before I ask my last question, tell these folks how they can get in touch with you online. Easiest way at this point in time, at this point in time, everything, you know, with my new insights of, of certain elements of my business, the best way to get hold of me is on LinkedIn. You can come and find me, Nathan Simmons, leadership coach on, on LinkedIn. Um, you can find all my resources there about leadership development. Uh, Following on from that, there's going to be a recrafting of my Facebook and other social media platforms as certain things develop. And depending when you guys are listening to this, January 20th, 2020, my first book, my first full book will be coming out, um, which is Stop Working, Start Living. And that's all about kind of the key elements of purpose and how to tap into some of those things I've talked about and start designing yourself start getting really clear on who you are and what you bring and how important you truly are to the world start playing in that space that's going to happen on the 20th of january so even if you just go and have a look at that book and you want to have a conversation with me come and find me on linkedin that's beautiful man congratulations on that coming out we'll have to link all that up in the show notes as it becomes available that'd be amazing that'd be amazing thank you absolutely my friend we'll definitely do that and so the last question is always the same and that's simply this what does wellness look like in your life Oh, what does wellness look like in my life? Wellness, no, it's one thing. And it's, I'll give you a reference point. Stanley, Stanley from Marvel Comics. Now, that guy was on oxygen tanks. He was, you know, being wheeled around by his nurse up until kind of the, the, latter, the, the latter part of his life. Yeah. But he still got on stage and he still did everything. He was full energy for all his fans. And I've got, and for me, that's kind of wellness, you know, is, is being in that space or just being lit up when you're in that zone. And I don't want to retire. Mm. I want to be able to do this. I want to share concepts. I want to talk to people. I want to 
be out there helping other people all the way through this existence. So wellness for me is having that energy to get on stage, having that energy to write a book or, you know, to plant seeds in my garden, to play with my grandchildren or great-grandchildren at whatever point I get to. And being able to smile while I do that because it just continually to it continually energizes me from the inside out. That's what I'm at. That's absolutely beautiful, man. I think you're the first person to answer the question that way. And I think the only way that that happens is when you're truly in spirit, you know, you're truly experiencing all of yourself and uh, it unites, you know, mind, body, spirit, however you want to look at it, that triad and to create something amazing. So thank Mm -hmm. you for that. Thank you for sharing that. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast, be sure and check out Nathan Simmons world. He's all over social media. Obviously we're going to link everything up in show notes. He's got a book coming out at the beginning of the next year. And I would definitely love for you to check out his stuff, reach out to him. If you feel like he can provide value to you in your life and your pursuits. I think he's proven that he can here today. So with that said, on behalf of Nathan and myself, guys, we will see you in the next episode. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.